Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Bagdash Ahadi. In 1984, when Bagdash Ahadi was three years old, he and his family fled their native Kabul, Afghanistan, after his father, a government employee, refused to join the communist regime. Bagdash's family eventually settled in the United States. In 2009, he interrupted his graduate studies to return to Afghanistan, uniquely positioned as both a United States citizen and an Afghan native who speaks the Dari language. He initially worked throughout Afghanistan as a translator and advisor to the U.S. military. He supported counterinsurgency efforts to win the hearts and minds of Afghan locals and engaged them in order to determine their perceptions on a wide range of topics, from opium production to Taliban roaming courts. We present Bakhtash Ahadi. You're very, very welcome to the show, Bakhtash Ahadi. It is an honor to be speaking with you today. As you know, the Journal of Health Design and this podcast is very much about vulnerable people. It's very much about framing medicine as the service of vulnerable people. And that's really why I'm so excited to be speaking with you today, because effectively, that's where your journey started. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be delighted to. It's uh, First and foremost, I'd like to say that it's my pleasure to be on your show. And um, I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C. And so my life and my journey started in 1981. I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, in the midst of the Afghan-Soviet war. And my father at the time was a soldier for the Afghan army, and his life was put into danger. And he was given an ultimatum by the Soviet-backed Afghan government to essentially join their forces. Otherwise, he would be killed. And so that day, he came home, told my mother, pack your bags, we're leaving. And so at the time, I was three years old, my brother was one, and my father made connections with the Mujahideen. We got onto horseback, spent seven days and six nights trekking through the Hindu Kush mountain range, eventually uh, making it to Peshawar into the refugee camp, spending approximately 18 months there in makeshift, makeshift homes. And since my father at one point was the demographic, he was the, uh, ironically enough, he was the key punch operator for the first demographic study of Afghanistan. And that study was led by US aid. And so he made his plea at the American embassy in Islamabad to essentially come to the United States. And the American diplomat at that post checked out my father's story and granted us asylum to come to the United States. And so I was raised in a small little college town on the East Coast of the United States. And that's how my life started. And so I came to the United States when I was five, grew up in a very Caucasian, homogeneous sort of town, was the first of my family to go to school. Like generationally, nobody had ever gone to school. So I went to college not knowing what it was really about. And nine days after I started college, Moyes, 9-11 happened. And so... So Afghanistan made it back on the map for the United States and then also back for my family. And so at that point, the way I like to describe it is that so many people were curious about the state of affairs in a place like Afghanistan because it's just an earth-shattering sort of event. And it was almost as though the world pulled me into this void that they wanted answers to questions that they had. And so in many ways, I got pulled into this space and it became 
something deeply curious that I just kept on thinking about because it was asked of me. And really, that set me on this quest of really trying to figure out why people do what they do. And so I'm really curious about human dynamics and changing perspectives and understanding how environment and biology and all these things come into play when it comes to better understanding the human condition. You know all about what it's like to be vulnerable, to be alone, to be to have nothing, to be depending on somebody else recognizing you as a human being and you as somebody who needs support in the Maslow terms, the basic things that we need to survive. You're describing the place where a lot of patients now exist in healthcare, uh, the place where people, maybe not in terms of the experience that they're having, but certainly in terms of how they are feeling about being in that space. You can imagine walking into a hospital with uh, a brain tumor that's just been diagnosed and how vulnerable you must feel. What can you tell us about what works in that situation? Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. I think as somebody who kind of thinks about this, straddling both sides of the fence of never fully being in American culture and never fully being in Afghan culture, I'm in this really interesting gray space where I can look at things objectively. So I, I frame this question with that. And so what's interesting about that is when people seek this sort of help in, in, in hospitals, I think the single most important thing to think about is this person has a different framing of the world in terms of who you as a healthcare provider are for them. And so what do I mean? Whether it's in the context of Australia or the context of the United States or parts of Western Europe, sometimes when immigrants go to healthcare providers, they quite literally see them as saviors. And in many ways, in the context of my parents, I'll speak on my personal experiences, my parents never really had the wherewithal let alone the knowledge, let alone the courage to be able to ask the right questions in terms of better understanding what's going on. And so we have to ask the question, why is this important? This is important because in many ways, people like that or people that are in those positions of, of vulnerability don't feel like they have the right to even approach the conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're right. They feel in a very alien place. And, and the, th the other thing, of course, is it's not, it's alien in the way that you discovered it to be, because it's not just the, that the language is different and the people look different and sound different, but it's also the infrastructure. So you can imagine walking into a, a hospital, a ward, and it's a clinical environment and there's machines beeping and there's people in funny uniforms and funny smells. So you're entering into that kind of place. How can we bridge that gap? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. You know, like the single most important thing I think can happen as a healthcare provider for your audience is when you see individuals like that, quite literally, it's hard because, you know, I understand the burn rate, the burnout rate for medical professionals and doctors is quite high. And so there's so many people to take care of and they have to jump from patient to patient to patient. But in those moments, in those moments when people are deeply vulnerable, the single most important thing that I believe a healthcare provider can do is take a moment and quite literally ask the question that needs to be asked. And that's completely dependent on the situation. 
But it takes a moment to really assess who these people are, where they could be coming from, and have the conversation that needs to be had. And I say this from a place of really deep curiosity about the other. You know, we jump from place to place. And what's interesting about the human mind, Moyes, is that we are pattern recognizing machines in many ways. And we assume that since this person fits this mold, they ought to fit this kind of cookie cutter approach. And I'm telling you, that's not how it ought to be. And if anything gains anything from, if anybody gains anything from this conversation, it's thinking about engaging others on their level, right? And so I'm sure people have heard this idea of seeing people as they are, not as we are, but seeing them as they are. Or another way to kind of think about it is meet people on their level. And so, like, I just remember countless times when my parents would go to the medical, go to medical professionals and they would always seek understanding for me as their translator. One, the language is in there, but also the approach is completely different. Mm. For example, simple things in terms of really embracing somebody's humanity is the simple acts of kindness, making eye contact. How are you today? And what's interesting about people is, I mean, this may happen in Australia, but this doesn't happen necessarily in the States. Because when you go to a medical profession in the United States, you get right to business and you tell the doctor what hurts. Other places, that's not necessarily the case. You have to go through these niceties. And so that's what I mean by having the conversation that needs to be had in order to get to the place in which people can meet where, where they are, where they want to be, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And of course, it isn't just a question of race, is it? Because this is also true in terms of social class, in terms of the social divide. Uh, you know, you, if you, if you're going to somewhere like the Mayo Clinic, for example, it's going to feel quite different potentially. It's your experience is going to, regardless of your race, is going to be very different experience for you. And what you're saying is that it's the onus is on the healthcare provider to recognize that and to take it on board before they start doing business. Precisely. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, the single, the single most important thing that people need, especially in times of crisis, is, to, is, is essentially to be seen, is to be met on the level in which they can essentially feel as though that they are safe. As a matter of human evolution, as a matter of organizational culture, as a matter of any relationship that takes place, what we often forget because we're so far removed from it is the single most important thing that human beings need is to establish trust, is to establish this place of, I feel safe in Moyes' arms. He's the person that's going to take care of me. And once that's established, it can, it can be established by, by simply having a conversation of, how are you? How are you today? What exactly can I be of service? How can I be of service to you? Mm. Instead of this rush, 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 what hurts? What's going on? It may alleviate the pain, but it does so in a very mechanical way. And so I think what I'm trying to say is approach a patient as though they are a human being with a greater sense of humanity. You will, I'm sure, have experienced good health care when you arrived in the U.S. At some point, you will have, perhaps not always, but there will be points at which you would have thought, that works for mom and dad, that works for me. What was it like then? They took their time. Did it take a long time to establish that trust? 
Oh yeah, and so it, it, once it was once it was established, mm. my mother and father they're with the same doctor. They're with the same doctor now for the last twenty five years, mm. right? And we're not talking about ER patient. We're not talking about ER doctors. We're not talking about first responders. We're not talking about medics in the context of combat. All of these places in which I've had experience and those moments of crises, by all means, fix the problem clinically as a mechanical function. But everything after that is all about seeing the person, meeting them where they are. And that's where healthcare providers quite literally can change the trajectory of somebody's life. You know, they say that doctors interrupt their patients within 11 seconds of them entering the room. Now, 11 seconds is a very short time. You're not talking about an hour-long conversation over a cup of tea. You're talking about very much, you're talking about minutes to establish that. Yeah, I'm right now experimenting and exploring this, um, this concept that I like to call the power of pause. And why is this important? This is important in the context of COVID-19, but as it pertains to the theme of your show, small little changes can have really big macro changes in the long run. And so for your listeners, one thing that maybe they may want to experiment with is ask a question and just hold the question. It's almost as though it's suspended. Let it rest and let it hold in between the two people that are having the conversation. And you will be surprised the magic that happens when you let the pause just hold. Mm. Because in that moment, people will fill it with thoughts and feelings, and they will show you the sense of vulnerability that you never thought you could get before. They call that the pregnant pause. And so the pregnant pause, thank you for sharing that. But let's take the let's take the pregnant aspect out of it so people don't have these wild their imagination doesn't, you know, takes gets the best of them. Just the power of pause. Quite literally, it will there's a an amazing poet who's a philosopher, his name's David White. He talks about having the conversations that need to be had. And once you have an honest conversation where two people actually see each other, the relationship and the conversation emancipates to a level that is actually in a place where both people see each other for who they are. Yeah. They're in a place of vulnerability and that's a place of honesty and that's where actual that's where an actual relationship can be established. Yeah. I, I really want to validate what you're saying by going back to your experience. I mean, you went back mm. to Afghanistan to serve with the armed forces in order to build peace in Afghanistan. Now, it didn't happen by going up to a village elder and yelling questions, expecting snap answers. It took place where you had to build trust. Mm. Tell, talk, talk about maybe you, I'm sure you've got stories about that. Talk about an experience like that. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So that's correct. I went back to Afghanistan and uh, this was during Obama's surge in Afghanistan. So from 10, 2010 until 2013, I was on the front lines as a combat interpreter. And my job in many ways was to be the bridge between American forces, the U.S. Marines, and the Afghan commandos, which are essentially the Afghan special forces, as we would go from village to village and essentially, in theory, try to win the hearts and minds of the Afghans. And so I will tell you, I'm not a pacifist. There are times when violence is necessary, but the strongest and the best relationships we've ever made that I was able to be a part of were always done 
with the intention of getting to better understand the person that we're speaking to and with. And it came down to having these conversations from a place of sincere curiosity and allowing that person to essentially share what they needed to share. And it sounds quite simple. It sounds simple, but you would be surprised what, you know, the difference between commanding somebody to do something in a village, a village elder, and taking five minutes to see where that person is coming from through a conversation. You could quite literally, we've in many different instances, I remember having conversations with village elders or even Afghan commandos where we would change their complete perspective about what America's interests in Afghanistan were actually and what ISAF NATO's interests in Afghanistan actually were through a five-minute conversation. Winning hearts and minds doesn't happen with brute force. As you will know, nothing happens with brute force, at least nothing in the long run. So villagers, we would go and we would essentially try to help them. And by, again, with this, this model could be applied to healthcare providers. Flying into a village, spending five minutes with, with a village elder, this happened numerous times, we would ask them, what exactly is it that you need? And we would wait for the response. We wouldn't give ideas. We would wait for the response and always come down to this idea of we need a clinic because our wives and our daughters are getting pregnant. We have no place to go. Or we want our kids to essentially become educated. Help us build a school and let them decide what they need most. Mm. And I think that's the single most important thing is allow for a framing of the conversation to take place ask the question, and then just sit back. That really changes the whole, I think the best word for it is the whole tone of the conversation. It makes people feel like their voice, it makes people who are marginalized actually feel like they have a voice. I can see how that could apply in medicine, where you've got a shed load of technology at your disposal, and what they actually want is to understand what's going on so that they can make a decision for themselves. And that may not include all of the paraphernalia that you have at your disposal, but something quite simple. It's the simplest things in life. It's always those small acts of kindness where we, feel, where we let people know that they're being seen and heard that makes them feel as though they belong. Regardless of their economic background, regardless of their racial background, regardless of their religious background, It's something innate and fundamental to who we are as human beings and how we've evolved to become who we are today. That's a profound insight, given your experience. And I think no one could doubt that the stakes were extraordinarily high in that situation for you, and indeed for America and for the Afghans. Because if this didn't work out, that war wasn't going to end and peace was never going to come. Right. At the end of the day... We have to think to ourselves, especially healthcare providers, everybody who's listening to this podcast, they are in the business, they are in the people business. If they don't understand how people think and how they operate and how they want to be spoken to, it's going to be a long, long, long climb up that mountain, mm-hmm. right? Like ultimately, everybody that's listening to this, this podcast and this conversation wants to better themselves and they want to be of service to others. Mm-hmm. I think that's. That's fantastically, that's, that's a fantastic goal to have. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as people in these positions of wanting to better themselves is, 
What's the conversation that needs to take place that I'm not having when I'm dealing with people? How can I make people feel as though they're seen, they're heard, and they belong? I think it was, um, oh gosh, I think it was Jim Carrey. He had something really profound to say, and it's stuck in my mind, and maybe it's worth sharing at this moment, but he said, as it pertains to the business of medicine, or as we've already talked about, the, the ecosystem of medicine, the single greatest currency that you have is the way in which you make other people feel. And that really, really, really can be something that your listeners can take away and really you know, implement on a daily basis in every engagement that they essentially have as a healthcare provider. And in fact, to speak to your point further, most doctors will admit this, 80% of the diagnosis is made on the history. It's made on what people actually say to you. Because as you say, we are in the pattern recognition business. We recognize patterns only when we see the whole tapestry laid out in front of you. And that tapestry will not be laid out in front of you until and unless you allow the space for that to happen. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and the thing is, Moy, is we're not talking about a lot of space. We're quite literally talking the difference between a 30-second conversation and a four-minute conversation. That can change the entire trajectory of how that person feels, not only about that doctor, the healthcare provider, but about that community, about that town, about that city, about that nation. And another thing to really consider is if the COVID-19 pandemic that's wreaking havoc all across the world is teaching us anything, it's that we are all a node in a network. And the decisions that we make have impacts and implications on others that we cannot even begin to imagine. What are you thinking here? I mean, ultimately, what's interesting is human beings are complex creatures. There are things going on, experiences and physiological phenomenon in many ways shape and form the people that we become. In many ways, I'm in the meaning-making business. And so I'm very interested in how people make meaning of the things that happen to them. We started this conversation by asking, by, you know, with me being really curious about why people do what they do. And so as healthcare providers, every engagement that a healthcare provider can have with a patient will have ripple effects on that person and everybody that that patient is associated with, to include their family, to include their community, to include their church community, religious community, or you know, academic community, or professional community, or their own family. And so when I say people are a node in a network, that's what I mean. These ripple effects end up going and affecting people that that doctor, that healthcare provider will never ever see, except that energy and or that way in which that medical provider acts affects others in which they can't even, they can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. You're speaking now to why I ended up in family medicine, because I recognized that the impact that I could have would be far greater if I saw the whole picture, which, and the whole picture includes the family. I know the relatives, I know the grandparents, I know the neighbors, I know the community, I know the shop in which these people buy their groceries, I know the library they go to, I know the cinema they've, they've been to, because probably I've been to this, those same places. And that, that was so powerful. That's why it was so useful to the troops to have you there, because you'd walked on those streets, you would 
knew mm. about that culture. In many ways, that's right. Like I, I love the example that you brought up in the in, in terms of deciding why you why you wanted to go into family medicine. Patients and individuals, we're all part of webs and networks, right? All of us. Before Facebook, there was this idea of a tribal community. Wherever you went, right? There was this idea of you name the community. We're social creatures, which is why quarantine and isolation is so difficult right now. And so when you diagnose a patient, you have to think to yourself, what else is going on here that I need to know? What is this person? Here's an example. What is this person ashamed to share with me? What does this person not know about what their brother is dealing with because of the shame associated with that condition or stigma attached to that condition? And you can speak to this, Moyes, as a family practitioner, you know how strong these notions of stigma, shame, embarrassment are attached to, especially Asian culture, or even socioeconomic conditions that don't allow for people to be honest about the things that they're dealing with because they had to be outworking, so they couldn't say the things that they needed to say. And so the one way I kind of think about it is, Everybody has something that they're essentially battling within themselves. I can't remember who said this, but I love this, and maybe this is a good time to share it. But if you're not dealing with your demons, they're in your they're in your soul lifting weights. And so, what is this? What are the implications of this? The implications of this are everybody is waiting to share what those demons actually are, and they often, often, often want to share them with healthcare practitioners. And if you give them that space to be able to do so, it changes the entire dynamic of the of the relationship. You know, and the very, very sad thing that is now beginning to rec- be recognized in the literature is that as family doctors, we are beginning to become more and more removed from our patients. We know less and less about them. Because of the way healthcare is funded and the way that we operate, you see people on a very intermittent basis, and you have no idea that they've got mortgage problem. You have no idea that their boss is a bully. You've no idea that the partner is an alcoholic. There are so many layers to it that you don't know about. And yet, within 11 seconds of them coming, you're firing questions at them, expecting answers that you, and then you're, you're disappointed at the results of your technical fix-its, which by the way are bankrupting our economy anyway, prescribing things that are entirely unnecessary, scans and goodness knows what else, which are bankrupting mm. the economy. It's great insight. Maybe one thing that doctors listening to this conversation could take away from is all the time, energy, emotions that doctors have invested in their training. Don't they want to spend just a little more time hearing what the patient has to say so that all that training that has been put into their into their lives that has been gifted to them in many ways don't they want to put that to good use right and that's the question that everybody i think if i was a medical doctor that's the question that i would wake up every morning and say to myself how can i be of service to my patients how can i be of better service to my patients and it's quite literally i think you said it beautifully earlier it's providing that space in order for them to allow and in order for for them to be able to speak what exactly is going on to unveil the tapestry that gives you the whole picture not just the snapshot that happens to be standing in front of you baktashadi when we started this conversation we kind of thought why 
as a non-medical person, as a non-scientist, if you want to call it that, had we got you on the show, I think you've proved how valuable the insights that you bring to this are to the business, let's call it ecosystem, because I like your word better, the ecosystem of healthcare. We need to see people in the whole context. And we, many of us in medicine are saying those things. But of course, the proof of it is what you, you and others achieved in a country like Afghanistan, where you had to be the interpreter, where you couldn't just go in and fire questions to get simple answers to fix a simple problem. It was not simple. It's not simple. And again, just remember that healthcare professionals, they're in the people business. People are complex creatures. And so, again, people who are doctors love to solve problems, right? They like to put puzzles together. Think of every patient as a puzzle. Thank you, Moyaz. It was my pleasure to be here. And uh, I wish you and everybody else the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.